Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and society. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, coming out in a couple months. I'm Charlie J. Danders, author of Victories Greater Than Death, a young adult space opera novel coming out in April. Awesome. So now you know we're writers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And today what we're going to talk about is something that we're calling disobedient bodies in science fiction and fantasy. And the disobedient body is a relatively persistent trope in in these genres. And we're using it to talk about bodies that exceed their abilities somehow or that cannot contain the power of the person within their body. You see it a lot in overpowered characters or characters who just consume ravenously like vampires and zombies. So our question is, what are these stories really about? What are we really talking about when we when we use these kinds of disobedient bodies? And we're going to talk about that. And in the second half, we're super lucky to have guest Meg Elison, who is a feminist cultural critic, as well as the author of the amazing book of the unnamed midwife, as well as the series that follows. And she has a new novel that just came out called Find Layla. So let's get going with the show. bodies that refuse to be ordinary, bodies that are disobedient. And before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge that we're not going to be talking about disability in this episode. We're going to have a whole other episode about disability. There's a lot to unpack there. It does overlap a tiny bit with what we're talking about today, but it deserves its own episode, so stay tuned. So to start out, I wanted to talk about the overpowered character, Charlie Mm -hmm. Jane. Um, yeah. And this is a big trope in anime. A whole bunch of the quirks in My Hero Academia have kind of an overpowered feeling. There's one quirk called All for One, where basically right. the person who has that quirk can like suck up everyone else's power, which is a super common trope you see in, in Western stories as well. And sometimes, you know, this leads to bad things. Sometimes it can actually be used for good. One of the characters that sticks out for me the most that I wanted to ask you about, Charlie Jane, is Dark Phoenix. Oh, yeah. Because that's a really, I find that character super interesting for all kinds of reasons. But I wonder if before we dig into Dark Phoenix, if you could just give us a super quick thumbnail sketch of who she is and how she got to be dark. So Dark Phoenix is Jean Grey, a member of the X-Men, who is sort of a super powerful telepath who can do all the telepath things, you know, read minds, telekinesis. Her mind. Yeah, she can do shit with her mind. And she's sort of the other telepath of the X-Men along with Professor X. And there's this thing called the Phoenix Force, which actually comes from outer space and is, you know, connected to these aliens called the Shi'ar, I think, which takes over her body and kind of gives her extra powers. But if she gets too powerful, then she basically turns evil, I guess. And then she has to die, basically. And then, you know, and this is like the big kind of tragic arc of like Jean Grey and Dark Venus is she gets more and more powerful until finally she can't handle it anymore. And she's too dangerous and she's also out of control and she ends up just having to die for everybody else's safety. They've done this now in two different X-Men movies where they kind of turned it into a more of a thing of like, more of a kind of weirdly gendered thing of like, we have to control women who are too powerful. And like Professor X in particular is like trying to kind of put limits on her for her own good. And it becomes this weird, yeah, very gendered thing around her power being specifically female power. One of the things I I recall is that, I mean, in certain versions of the story, Xavier is aware that she's much more powerful than him. And he like implants, I think what he calls roadblocks in her head, right? Yeah, that's the movie version. I don't think that happens in the comics. If if Baruch was here, he could tell us in great detail about Dark Phoenix. But (laughs) I think in the comics... 
it's just that you know she gets more and more powerful and people are like whoa dude whereas in the in the movies i think usually it's there they leave out the part where there's like an alien force that kind of comes into her body and it's just that from childhood she shows signs of being too powerful and so the men in her life are like this girl has to be contained this girl has to be controlled and so it's a very different kind of story when you don't include the thing about the sort of phoenix force coming from outer space Well, I want to say two things about that. One is that I think it's interesting that it's never examined in any of the stories where Xavier implants roadblocks in her brain. It's never questioned about maybe it was the roadblocks that fucked her up. Like maybe the problem wasn't her power, but like all of the weird things they did to her head to prevent the power. Like that would be a super interesting story to investigate that it's just no one ever even brings that up. And then the other thing is that I feel like that the power coming from outer space still winds up being kind of what you were saying about like female bodies are uncontrollable because it's her body that's able to be the vessel for this power, right? Or her her power is able to host this power because she's already so incredibly agile with her mental strength or whatever. I don't know. She's she's the perfect vessel for the the phoenix power. And that's also still kind of her fault somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since I read the original Dark Phoenix saga. And, you know, I've read a bunch of, like, the comics that have come out since then, like X-Men Phoenix, End Song, mm-hmm. uh, which was written by Greg Pak, actually, and, and was pretty was awesome. I pretty love fun ride. Yeah, you know, I think that part of what's going on with, with Dark Phoenix and with other kind of overpowered superheroes, I feel like superheroes are often kind of monstrous to begin with. Like the line between monster and superhero is is a wavy one. Like the Incredible Hulk is a superhero, for example, and a bunch of other superheroes who are basically kind of like Frankenstein-y or, mm-hmm. or kind of like actual fantasy monsters get to be, you know, superheroes and get to be seen as heroic. Oftentimes when you have characters who are kind of an analog of Superman, they kind of play up the kind of weirdness of this like, oversized kind of overpowered body and you know you had this trend i guess starting in the 90s of really drawing superheroic bodies as like kind of so muscly that you can see every vein and every mm-hmm. new, like sinew and their it, bodies are like breaking out of their bodies in a weird way yeah they're like um, bodybuilders but like times 10 and that was kind of the rob liefeld kind of you know image comics style that became super mainstream in the 90s and 2000s and kind of defined how superheroes are drawn so i think that you know there is kind of this weird crossover in superheroes between how powerful they are and how we depict their bodies as being kind of you know out of control in some way that's what I think is interesting about Dark Phoenix, and I'm glad that you you brought up the stuff around gender, because depending on the movie or the, the comic book, she's usually depicted as having, this is all about mental power, but the mental power strains her body. Like, it's almost as if it's her body, her female body, that can't deal with having so much power inside of it. I mean, sometimes she's sort of ripped apart almost, mm-hmm. and she's sort of you know, lighting things on fire. And it's like, there's all this stuff that's kind of coming out of her body, but her body isn't strong enough. Like, it's interesting that like Hulk can somehow handle growing super giant and then shrinking back down again. But mm-hmm. like Jean Grey just can't handle having this mental power that kind of stretches the bounds of her body. Her body just has to be destroyed and, and her mind has to be destroyed or contained in some way. I don't know, her character to me is an interesting way to start this conversation because we never know really with her if her power is in her body, in her mind, limited by her body, limited by her mind. It's almost like in Jean Grey's character, there's this like breakdown of this division between mind and body because we don't, we don't ever know what the the limit is that she's breaking through, you know, what, what's causing her to be so disobedient as it were the Cartesian dualism problem. Right. And I do really think, like, having read, like, a billion superhero comics, I think that in superhero comics, your power tearing your body apart is, like, a very common thing for Mm -hmm. both male superheroes and female superheroes, but I think it probably is a little bit more common for female superheroes. And this idea that, like, you get so powerful that your, like, eyes are glowing and your hands are glowing and you're starting to, like, just kind of turn into, like, pure power. 
and your flesh is ripping off mm-hmm. and like things yeah. are, are coming, spikes are coming out of your body. I mean, it's interesting that Wolverine is kind of one another character that has the same problem. Um, yeah. You know, because he's, unlike some of the other characters, like anytime he gets his power, his body is violated, right? Like he's constantly being penetrated from the inside by his own power yeah. and having to heal, which is, you know, depending again on the representation of Wolverine, it's more or less painful for him, right? Like sometimes it's like you, he's in agony. Like every time the knives come out of his hands, he's like, ouch. And like, yeah, you know, you know and sometimes it's just like, dude, I got the knife hands, you know? So <laughs> I think, you know, it's, been, it's actually canonical that like it hurts horribly every time those knives come out. And, you know, the, the Wolverine's origin story always lingers on the thing where every bone in his body is coated with adamantium. And it's like this whole yeah. thing of like, they have to basically tear his body apart, fill his skeleton or cover mm-hmm. his skeleton with this impenetrable metal. And then somehow he's not just too heavy to move after that. Well, um, because he because of his healing ability and strength and stuff. But yeah, yeah so I wanted to turn away from the X-Men for a fine. bit now. And <laughs> I wanted to talk about a movie that you and I are both kind of obsessed with. It's called yes. Society. Oh, my God. Um, It's an 80s, it's sort of a mid-80s movie directed by Brian Usna, who did a bunch of really schlocky political thriller-type movies. Um, Not political thriller, like political horror. And he also worked a lot with Screaming Mad George, who is a fantastic special effects artist who does a lot of the gloopy, gooey, drippy effects. And these are all practical effects. And so Society is, uh, it's a simple tale of a youth growing up in Beverly Hills and his parents are really weird. His sister's a little strange. He just feels kind of like he doesn't fit in, but he's not really sure why. And eventually he discovers that his family and most of the other wealthy families in Beverly Hills are actually aliens who are kind of shapeshifters. They're kind of a they're kind of a collective, but they've separated out into human bodies. They're always like having sex with each other and like trading body parts. So there's Mm -hmm. like spoilers, a key scene where he finally puts two and two together when he accidentally walks in on his parents and sister having sex, but they're all in this like gelatinous mass kind of, and all their body parts are switched around and his dad's face is inside his dad's butt. And his dad's face in his butt says like, what's wrong? You know, are you upset about something? Like, I'm paraphrasing. That's not exactly what he says. But Man, that um, movie. It's super crazy. And it kind of culminates with this scene where all of the wealthy folks of Beverly Hills get together and they're having this nice dinner party and they're arranging for their children to get fancy fellowships and, and internships and doing all the things that rich people do. And then... For dessert, they eat someone. They take off their clothes. They all slime into one giant slime bucket of white rich people. And then they they just eat this guy. They absorb his body, a young person who's poor. So it's it's a bit of a an allegory, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, not it's it's quite heavy handed and and um and in that way it's very delightful because it doesn't pull any punches. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't try to pretend that it's just about goopy aliens. It's like, and yes, they are the people who control the economy and, and politics, and they're eating poor people for fun. And they're also this, like, incestuous blob. Mm -hmm. So this is, like, a very simple story of class struggle, right? Like, in a sense. Um, Why do you think that we imagine that as this kind of disobedient body that's, like, absorbing poor people? Like, why do we tell the story using that visual metaphor? Especially during the era when that movie came out, like, late 80s, early 90s, body horror really was, like, the vehicle for social commentary. And there's so much body horror from that era where in one way or another, we are commenting on class or gender or socially Mm -hmm. constrived roles using by kind of breaking down and melting and distorting and, you know, sliming up the body. This is the era when uh, the Alien movies were really popular. Um, John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, David Cronenberg movies uh, like The Fly were really popular. When was Dead Alive? Dead Alive is another like really Oh yeah, Dead Alive is kind of Peter Jackson's big breakthrough film. I want to say it's like early 90s. I don't know. I don't think that same era. Yeah, and often in the body horror movie, the person who is like 
it's the victims who are kind of having their bodies kind of melted or destroyed or turned into something like grotesque and, and distorted. So it's actually, I think, a little bit more unusual for the powerful people to be the ones whose bodies kind of do this. But I think it actually comes back to what we were talking about with Dark Phoenix a little bit, which is that part of how we want to imagine power is that it transcends. And part of what power transcends is physical limitations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of what's so monstrous about these rich people in society, and, you know, I think that there are other monsters who have this as well, is that they were able to kind of, yeah, transcend the limitations of the human body and become something kind of, you know, that, that doesn't have the same idea of selfhood and, you know, embodiment that we have that we we could think of as being intrinsic to ourselves, it kind of highlights how powerful they are that they can actually leave that behind. And it's kind of an, an interesting inversion of the body horror trope, I think. Yeah, that's a super interesting point about power. And it also is combined with the fact that these people are setting themselves up above the law and above morality. Mm-hmm. Um, they're totally incestuous their sexuality is like, I don't even know, it's beyond pansexual. <laughs> it's like, if you're sticking your own it's bucket into sexual. your butt. <laughs> it's, it's not even pansexual, it's bucket sexual. It is bucket sexual. And I have to say that one of the things about the body horror of this sort of late 20th century era, a lot of it is kind of sexualized. Like the movie Reanimator has like an incredibly gross oh like, my God. Um, sex scene, which when I saw it in uh, high school, I thought was delightful. I was like, hey, he's giving head. Um, Let me just say, just check it out. Watch Reanimator if you want to get the pun. All of these films, I should say, are very satirical. They're very heightened and cartoonish. They're not torture porn at all in the way that we think of it now. They're not like Saw. They're not like Saw. They're not realistic. They're very cartoony. Like these, you know, when this kid is eaten by the evil rich people in society. Like, I mean, you might be like, ew, but you won't feel like your own body is being violated because it's it's so incredibly, you know, surreal. It doesn't even feel like real, well, it doesn't feel like real bodies are involved. So I think that's very interesting that it's, part of it is that their bodies are transcending the rules, but also having their bodies do this makes them ripe for satire or makes them Mm -hmm. the perfect satirical vehicles. Because of course we can, to go back again to the butt face thing, um, we can have that. And there's a lot of other puns like that in in the movie where we see different body parts used in um, satirical ways. So even though it is showing the power of the rich, it's also showing the absurdity uh, of, of that power. Yeah. And of course, they are defeated in a sense. I mean, the bad guys don't entirely win. um, Spoiler uh, alert. Yeah, spoiler alert for a movie (laughs) that came out in the mid 80s. But we're not telling you exactly. And it's not a perfect win, really. Right. Um, We know that, that there's more of these aliens out there. So to finish up, I wanted to talk about ravenousness and insatiableness and how so many of these disobedient bodies are like the bodies of vampires or zombies that just cannot stop eating and especially eating other people. I want to talk about bodies that are ravenous and insatiable and monsters like vampires and zombies that just cannot fucking stop eating brains, human brains mostly, Mm -hmm. and blood. Like they want to eat humans, but they're also formerly human. And this is like, one of the oldest tropes in the book. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it goes back very, very far in mythology and certainly in in genre. It goes back to the 19th century at least with things like Dracula. There's a, a lot of questions about why the ravenous and hungry body is so disobedient. Why is that something that we find so challenging? Why does it come up again and again? So, Emily, what is it about these kinds of stories that makes us focus on this type of hunger? And is it specifically gendered? Is it female hunger or is it just hunger? I think it's both. And I wanted to pick on the movie Jennifer's Body a little bit. And when I say pick on, I love this movie. I want to just investigate it a little bit because it's definitely a movie that's dealing with the gendered part of this story. And of course, Jennifer, the character, is a person who has been used over and over, consumed by the boys in their school as a sex object. 
And she's kind of willingly offering herself as a sex object for the band that turns her into this monster creature. I mean, they're trying to sacrifice her in order to um, become a wow. more successful band um, in, in some sort of like reverse Julie and the Phantoms scenario. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and, uh, but they fuck up because they're idiots. It's probably why their band sucks so much. And so instead of sacrificing her and becoming this great band, uh, they believe her when she says she's a virgin. And, uh, and so they try to sacrifice her. Well, it turns out, of course, she's not a virgin. Um, oh, she's an adult woman and uh and she just fucking kills them she becomes she becomes a demonic force we don't actually know the nature of her of of what's quite happened to her maybe she's inhabited by a demon or something else um but she has to keep eating people mostly boys Mm -hmm. um at their school and her best friend who has not become a monster is having to kind of clean up the mess and and deal with it and i think in that film there's this is very much about sort of the limits of female power and like what happens when a woman doesn't conform to what men want her to be, whether that's a virgin or a compliant sex companion, that there's this kind of switch in our culture when it comes to women's bodies where it's like either you're like a compliant sex toy or you're a monster who wants to eat everything. And I think that the consuming of people um, is is really just a kind of a literalization of what's been done to her. You mm-hmm. know, she's been consumed as an object, and so she's like, fine, well, you're everyone's an object, I guess, so I might as well eat you. Yeah. And there's a lot of other stuff going on in the film, too, about sort of how, how women prey on each other in friendships. That's the other piece of the film that's super interesting. Um, but then there's also just regular zombies, right? Like zombies like in the Night of the Living Dead series or Walking Dead mm-hmm. who are not particularly gendered, I don't I don't feel like. Especially in the, the Night of the Living Dead series, it's really more just like the shambling masses. Mm-hmm. And of course, in Dawn of the Dead, it's made explicit that this has to do with consumer culture because all the zombies are like walking around the mall, mm-hmm. um, you know, moaning for like coffee, jeans <laughs> like they all just right. want consumer items and they've come back to the mall because the mall was like a place that they remember from life and, mm-hmm. and they're hungry and and they when they think of their hunger they think of jeans coffee i think that's the other piece of it is that again this is about having a desire to have the kind of power that those people in society have mm-hmm. you know like to yeah. be rich to be able to to consume, but when you fail to do that, your body, there's a kind of a rebellion in your body. You know, you're kind of, you're left in this undead state where you're constantly hungry, you're constantly craving life, Mm -hmm. but you don't ever get it. You can't ever be satisfied. And so I think that the ways that the zombies eat people, the way that Jennifer eats men or young men in Jennifer's body is very different from the way that the rich people eat poor people in society. Yeah. So actually, I just last night finished reading a uh, a vampire novel by Silvia Moreno-Garcia called Certain Dark Things, which is one of her earlier novels, which is being reissued by Tor Nightfire, and I was asked to sort of take a look at it. And it's super interesting. It actually, one of the refrains that is mentioned over and over again in that book is, we are our hunger like vampires specifically, like Mm -hmm. we are defined by our hunger. It's who we are. It's what we are. We can't be friends with humans. We can't be like, can't be nice. We only can be kind of, you know, predators and carnivores. Mm -hmm. And this idea, like I think when you have a vampire or a zombie or monster story where something is, there's a creature that's just hungry all the time, there can be a tragic component to it if it's like basically like you're condemned to constantly be preying on others. And I think that this does yes. kind of come back to the the problem of capitalism and the problem of living in a society where basically every time, you know, you order from your online retailer, you are preying on other people's bodies in order to get the things that you need to keep going. And I think that there is this sense in which power, like the power to consume, the power to maintain your own existence comes with a cost and the cost is often borne by other people. And that often there's a trade-off I feel like where 
if I, the monster, want to keep my body intact and keep my body looking attractive and young and pretty and vivacious, I have to steal that from other people. Mm-hmm. And so my body can look great as long as I make other people's bodies, others, I either kill them or ruin them. Drain their essence. Drain yeah. their essence. And, you know, and indeed in, in Sylvia's book where she has like, I think, 10 different types of vampires. She has like a taxonomy of vampires in the back that includes revenants and hopping vampires and Aztec vampires. Oh man, like I love that. I love the taxonomy European of monsters. Vampires, and they all have different feeding <laughs> habits and they all have yes. different relationships to their prey. And some of them are more kind of like exploitative than others. It's really interesting. Like the tech, the vampire taxonomy in the back is actually one of the things that like really stuck with me about that book. I mean, it's a great book in general. She has one character in particular who every time he feeds, he gets younger and more handsome and his body is in better shape. Uh, but he has to, he does this by sucking the life essence of other people. And I think that's super common. The idea that like basically for my body to be perfect yours has to be ruined and it does come back to the thing where rich people have yoga and personal trainers and you know $500 smoothies that contain you know I don't know the hair of you know small creatures from like you know the the rainforest or whatever I don't even want to joke about that but yeah I mean basically it's this idea that like rich people have perfect bodies because they are taking from everybody else and that is kind of I love that comes back too Yeah, I think that you're totally right. I think on one hand, um, these are stories that literalize what happens to your body in capitalism. You know, instead of um, showing us that yoga-toned body or the body of the person with the horrible smoothie, um, it shows us what they really look like. It's it's sort of a portrait of Dorian Gray thing where it's like, yeah, actually, this is a horrible, disgusting monster that only survives by doing disgusting, awful things and hurting people and killing people. And then I think there's the zombie side of it or the kind of Jennifer's body side where it's someone who has not been in a position to take power over anyone or to consume someone else. And now because they've been screwed over by someone, they are stuck in a constant hunger trying to do that. But they don't, I think with the, especially with the zombie, they never achieve that beautiful body or the the yoga pose you know they're they're just <laughs> shambling around rotting away yeah um, but they've been pitted against other people and so they're kind of in that position of like working class people fighting each other when really they should be fighting whoever unleashed the zombie virus yeah and i think that that's like the most important point which is that you know, we depict bodies as monstrous when they feed on other people, but oftentimes the people that we stigmatize and kind of like depict as the most monstrous are the people who are actually fucked over, but are... Sucked into the system. They're sucked into the system. Either they're gaining a tiny amount of power, but that power comes at the cost of having to exploit other people and they're not far away enough from it that they can just not have to see that. Or, you know, it's like, oh, well, you're trying to be like the rich and powerful, but that's not for you. You know, you are trying to have something that's not, that should be yours. You're trying to lay claim to power that belongs only to the the genuinely powerful. And so it's actually oftentimes there's, even as these narratives can be very subversive and like society, very subversive and kind of like tearing down the rich and powerful, often there's a very repressive you know, conservative side to it where it's like, well, we're really going to stigmatize the people who are trying to climb up those are the people that we're going to really turn into like, you know, slimy, rotting monsters. It reminds me of the first season of True Detective, which, sorry, I'm going to spoil it because if you haven't seen it, it's been a while. The whole arc of True Detective is that there's these rich people who are, you know, engaging in these terrible murder rituals and like possibly with some kind of cosmic element or possibly just they're just like, they like to murder people because they're Mm -hmm. rich and creepy. And then at the very end, the actual bad guy, the true monster, is like the super oppressed product of this like incestuous rape um, who is barely getting by. He's barely surviving. He's living in a hovel. He works as like a groundskeeper. Um, and he's the one that's truly the most evil who's been committing the super evil crimes. And it's like, what? Come on. Like, this guy is just a horrible zombie victim. You know, it's it's all these other people in like the mm-hmm. in the government and in, you know, the you know, higher echelons of corporate power that are really perpetrating all the crimes. But 
you know, in the end, it's just this horrible, you know, white trash guy who lives in a, like a trailer or some abandoned house or something. And it's just, I, I'm sorry if you love this show, listeners. I, I also loved the show, actually. I thought it was fantastic until the last episode. So I, I have a little bit of anger management to do about that. Um, all right. So while we're still on the topic of consumption, let's talk to Meg Elison about fat phobia and fat fetishism. All right. So we have Meg Elison here. Meg, welcome to the show. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So Charlie Jane was just saying that you had a great interview in Locus where you talked a lot about bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, this is a big theme in your work. And we've just been talking about bodies that are ravenous. And so I think this is a good segue to start talking about the overwhelming themes that we see of fat phobia in science fiction and fantasy. I mean, these are obviously, we see fat phobia everywhere in our culture, but I feel like genre has its own set of issues around it. And I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about how you see fat phobia working in genre stories and a few a few of your favorite or hadiest examples. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I love a lot of golden age science fiction depiction of fatness in ways that you might not expect because it's not a particularly Ooh. welcoming place for fat bodies, but it also does treat them as a unique part of the future where they haven't flexed that muscle that is obviously a representation of eugenics where you say all bodies in the future will be ideal, perfect bodies. But uh, I have a collection of stories that was edited in the early 80s by Isaac Asimov and George R. R. Martin called the Science Fiction Weight Loss Book. Oh, and, oh okay. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> weird piece of ephemera that nobody seems to know about. And I, I showed it to George. Never heard of this. Oh, it's so weird. I showed it to George when we were at NorwestCon together. And he kind of laughed because he hadn't seen it in so long. And then he told me, you know, I think this book is cursed because before I edited it, I was thin. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I know. What a weird thing to say. It was a very strange thing to say, especially to me. But, you know, I I kind of expect that even among self-loathing fats like George. So there are stories in it about the action of zero G or weightless environments on fat bodies. There are stories in it about a fourth dimensional girdle that when you tighten it just right, it stores your fat in another dimension so that you appear thinner in this one. Oh my God. There's a lot of complexes going on here. so complex. There's a lot of stories about sort of the politics of desire and where that places people who are fat uh, under different paradigms. And I, I find it just endlessly fascinating. There is, of course, the classic recycled body story. Like, what if you could get as fat and shitty as you want and then just get a new body because it's the future of course it's required to have one of those and also it contains the stephen king short story quitters inc which is only only sort of tangentially about weight loss and weight gain so i've been trying to track stories about fatness or concerning fatness back to the beginning of genre and specifically how we project the ideal body and uh, there are so many good examples of fatness being incidental, but only where it stands in as a measure of character. It implies gluttony. It implies carelessness. It implies greed, most of all. Mm-hmm. And what arcs are applied to characters who start off fat and then lose weight, which is, I, I know I always beat this drum, but it's a huge problem in Stephen King stories because he has such a loathing for fat people. So he awards valor to characters that manage to lose weight and then with withholds uh, approval or audience affection from characters who don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in It, one of the characters oh. who's fat when he's a kid, he we know he's a good guy because he's lost that weight when he becomes a grown-up. Right, that's, that's how you like, know he's good. Yeah. And, oh, and wow. conversely, another character, Eddie Capsbrack, has a very fat mother and, and then a very fat wife. And they are bad and they are timid and they are poor-spirited because they stay fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually, it's a, it's a fascinating de- dimension of horror as long as we're talking about genre work. I mean, fat is often a stand-in for the worst kinds of body horror. Like when a, when a body is revealed for shocking effect, fat is almost always one of the, the largest markers of that. If it's not fat, it's disability. If it's not that, it's age. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, you can do all three for like, you know, like a <laughs> max effect. I'm thinking of uh, yeah. the witch from just a couple years ago where the, the witch is revealed to be haggard, very old, nude and on the fat side. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing in uh, Hereditary, which oh, drove yeah. me nuts because yeah. that's the same thing where it's like old, fat, naked ladies. And like, at least at the end, they're kind of cool, you know? Like, or at least they get some power. <laughs> they get some power. I was like, there's two ways, ways to read this scene. <laughs> right? So it's, it's very telling that the, the, the soundtrack tells you that the most horrifying thing that you've ever seen is perhaps a woman's body that is not appealing to you. It doesn't make me think much of a filmmaker. Yeah, oh, no, same. So you've been talking a little bit about like what fat bodies sort of represent symbolically and like why we kind of come back to them. Is this like a gendered phenomenon? Is this something that, you know, we see kind of across the board? Is it different? Like for men, like in Dune, we have the floating fat man mm-hmm. and we have Jabba the Hutt in, yeah. in Star Star Wars. So there's like a kind of a male paradigm and then we were just talking about the kind of naked, fat, old lady paradigm. You know, I feel like when you have a a, a man who is fat, often he's feminized or he's mm-hmm. a feet or he's a little bit fey. He's a little bit like like the, like in Baron Harkonnen, who's like, oh, my boy, my boy. Oh, Harkonnen my is boy. like the original uh, creepy gay villain. Like uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's definitely, he's painted with a brush of pederasty and his fatness is a physical clue to that. Uh, yes, I think fatness is extremely gendered and it is used to, as Charlie J said, uh, render a man's body feminized and to always render it incapable of being the object of desire, Jabba the Hutt being the best possible example of having to have your lovers on a literal chain or your Mm -hmm. slaves in the case may be. (sighs) It's funny because it renders men ridiculous and it renders women (sighs) pitiful. It either way robs them of power because you are neither the object of desire nor the motivator of desire. Mm-hmm. And there's also, there is also a short, I, I think there's a narrow paradigm where the fat body is rendered sexless because it is set outside of the matrix of desire, mm-hmm. uh, which, which you could you could almost read a non-binary identity into. And as awful as it is, as an example, I'm thinking of SNL's Pat sketch. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! The fatness of the body is used to degender it, mm-hmm. which and I know that a lot of fat people have ex- have expressed the experience of having been put outside the spectrum of gender, treated as neither boy nor girl, but as some kind of go between, and as an impartial observer, and as the kind of friend who can give advice. And oh I, wow! I think there yeah, are, it's a it's a neutering kind it of is. thing. It's exactly I mean, it's that. the same thing with um, in Game of Thrones, the character mm-hmm. who is like oh, various, various. Right. Yes. And he's he's a kind of non-binary figure. Um, Definitely. We know he's a eunuch um, mm-hmm. and he's also fat. And that's kind of part of his his and presentation. Effete and mysterious and fastidious mm-hmm. and grooming and in presentation. And yeah, it does sort of render him a non-binary figure. Mm-hmm. It does in any event put him outside of the all-important breeding complex that is the entire animus of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Yeah, well, and exactly. also in Game of Thrones, you have King Robert, who much is made of how he's too fat for his armor in the first season. Yes. And he also, he became fat when he became kind of a not a good king anymore. And he also didn't father his own children. Right, because fat men couldn't. Of course not. You know, I well, mean, I guess... he does have children, but they're not royal They're not, children. yeah. She made he has sure a bunch that. of bastards. It's true. He has yeah. many bastards. Yeah. Also, I was thinking as I was um, sort of thinking about this show, I kept thinking about how many bad guys eating scenes there are in yes. movies and books about fatness where it's just like, he's just eating. He's always eating. Like, he's just always got a oh, chicken man. leg in his mouth or he's like eating something horrible, you know? It's like, always something messy or something very bloody. I'm thinking of uh, the scene in, in Lord of the Rings where uh, the, the steward of Gondor, I've forgotten his name, is shown to be devouring great feast as they prepare the funeral pyre for one of his his children. And uh-huh. I can read it I can read it one of two ways. Like the body that is always hungering is a danger. It poses a danger because you may yourself be consumed and it poses a danger because you may depend on the same stores that keep that body alive and it's taking mm-hmm. more than its share. 
And it's it's applied very specifically with fat characters. As with King Robert, there's always some great excess of consumption. It's it's mm-hmm. not, you know, it's it's four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. It's not. And there are, are plenty of characters who are constantly indulging. Like Cersei puts away barrels of wine for God's sake. There is no <laughs> there's no implication of discipline. There is no statement that if it, these people are bodied correctly because they consume correctly. It's just that if you consume really wrong, you have the really wrong kind of body. So it's a mm-hmm. very interesting uh, statement of desert of the body. Yeah, although Cersei's body is punished in plenty of ways. Yeah, like, but you she's know, punished she's, for being a slut. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's a whole other for, yeah. set of ways that thing. Yeah. bodies are contained and, and framed, yeah. contained, and marginalized, as we say. Absolutely. So, I wanted to get to fat fetishization. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> because I I mean, I think that this is something that gets talked about a lot less and it's still very much a part of the genre. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about fat fetishization and where that fits into fat phobia and or is it is it a corrective to fat phobia? I don't find it to be a corrective to fat phobia. And I know that that can be a controversial statement because for some fat people, discovering fetishism is sort of freeing because it places you back on the matrix of desire. It places you at an extreme point on that matrix, but still in a desirable body. So when it is depicted in in genre film and books, but especially in, in all books, in all media, it mm-hmm. is posited as, it is presented as though it is one of the most extreme forms of perversion. It will be paired with things that are deeply unacceptable, like uh, age play or like coprophilia. It is, it's represented as a very, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's an extreme perversion. Mm-hmm. And taboo. It's yeah, extremely it's taboo. taboo. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's like bestiality or like right. yeah, incest or, yeah. And when I see it, it's almost never centered. It's almost always peripheral to a buffet of perversions and taboos. Like you, you're going through the strange space bordello and you know in one room there's a tentacle thing happening and then another room somebody's having sex with a cloud of vapor and in one room it's just like a really oiled up very fat humanoid body and it is Ah. as strange and non-normative as those other ones Oh, that's making me rethink this. One of my favorite scenes in the movie Nightbreed, which is oh. a deep cut from the 1990s. And yeah. there's a it's just like that. There's a scene where we go down into the realm of the Nightbreed, who are the, mm. the kind of leftover creatures from before history. They're all having sex. It's like a BDSM dungeon. And it's just like that. There's like a room with vapor and a room with a devil and then a room with a fat person and a room <laughs> with a, a dragon. And like, and it's just like, these are our, you know fetishes or whatever. It has the opposite effect sometimes of rendering the fat body extremely powerful. Like if fucking the devil, if fucking a tentacle monster is the same as fucking a fat body, then all I have to do is walk around naked to stop traffic, right? If we are that non-normative, if we are that taboo, then there's no limit to what we can do with it. I'm thinking of uh, William Kunstler's series, uh, World Made by Hand, which is a slightly more literary uh, post-apocalyptic novel. And there's a character who emerges later in it who is described very much like a queen bee. Like she is a largely immobile, extremely fat woman who receives tribute of various kind from drones and may or may not be in her right mind or capable of consent. And it's, it is presented as extreme weirdness. And that, that's the level that he expects uh, of, of highly religious society to operate on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's like the ultimate fallen state is to have that kind of setup. That's it. So I wanted to bring up the greatest movie of 2019, which is, of course, Cats. <laughs> and Rebel Wilson's character in that movie, who, yes. you know... Rebel Wilson, I think, is always, almost always a sexy, like, she almost always plays, like, kind of sexy characters, Mm. I feel like. But in Cats, she's this weird, like, everything in Cats feels incredibly sexualized to me. It is. Like, that movie feels, like, basically... When we first see her character, she's masturbating. Yes. And she's like rolling around rubbing her crotch. But she also, like, she also eats little people. Yes. In that movie. Yes. And it's like her children and then bites their heads off. She's like the sexy, chubby cat person, but because she's chubby, we have to watch her eat people. 
Yes. I just wanted to kind of process about she that eats for the a moment. Cockroaches, right? Right. Yeah. They have human faces. Oh no, no, they're people. Yeah, yeah. no, no. I, I, I totally I was just trying to remember if it was mice or cockroaches. So there, cockroaches. there are dancing mice also, but she eats the cockroaches. Right. Mm-hmm. I have trouble with Rebel Wilson's presentation because as you said, she does play like a, a sexy character who puts herself on the matrix of desire. But also it is played as a joke that she views herself that way. It is mm-hmm. always the object of comedy that she should imagine that she is that desirable so there's a lot of layers of operation to it that i'm not entirely happy with and then yeah when she has a chance to turn that taboo to her advantage she wholeheartedly takes it and the characterization in cats although a deeply mushroom addicted nightmare that that movie is is a pretty good example of i mean there are literal murders in that movie (laughs) And there is uh, a hard allusion to cat sex work and cat pandering, but <laughs> more non-normative than all of that, more strange and more uh, more viewed with disgust from all of that is the fat cat. And everybody knows, everybody loves fat house cats. Like how many subreddits are there for chonky animals? And how many people <laughs> love chonky animals and won't be decent to fat people in real life? I feel like there should be some kind of law. I do too. And I, I want to, like, following that thread, I want to hear about how you deal with this in your own work and how do you try to flip some of this stuff on its head and, like, give us, like, the hot chonk instead of all the other crap that we've been talking about. <laughs> I, I just recently worked with the author Marianne Kirby on a class for Writing the Other, which is a great organization. And we did a course on writing the fat body as the other. And one of the things that we talked about at length, because people were so interested in it and so unaccustomed to hearing about it, is fat sensuality. Like what is sensual and differently pleasurable about being a fat person or being with a fat person, or even better, being a fat person with a fat person. And because of that taboo, because of those markers of disgust and the expectation of horror in the body, it's very rarely explored. So one of the things I always try to do in my own work is express a unique sensuality and connection, the coziness and the hooginess and the absolute luxury of having a surfeit of calories in the body and what that means for experiences like heat and depth and expansive skin and how different things feel on stretch march skin. And I feel like that there is uh, an authoritative quality to fat writers admitting to their own pleasure within the framework of that taboo, just both middle fingers up, bellies out, talking about how great it is. And I can't wait to see more of that work in the world. Same here. I I wanted to finish up um, with just asking, well, all of us, I guess, to talk a little bit about what makes the kinds of bodies that we're discussing disobedient. What are they disobeying? Like, what are we resisting with fat bodies or bodies that exceed expectations or exceed social boundaries? Meg, what do you think? I bet you've thought about this. I don't think that the fat body in itself is an act of rebellion. It is simply a fact of nature. Some people are just fatter than others, and it's the way it is, and nobody gets fat on purpose to make a statement. That's not how this works. I think the statement comes in where you refuse to hide yourself, to shrink yourself, or to perform the endless mea culpa of hating the body that people expect of you in public. It's 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 what we get accused of promoting obesity by doing, is just by joyfully existing and using the body as it was meant to be used and taking pleasure in all that it can do. That's incredible resistance. And we are resisting everything. We're resisting uh, the expectation of health. We're resisting the valorization of of fitting the norm. We're resisting uh, an expectation of heteronormativity and of female obedience and especially of female thinness and smallness and the expectation that women are always uh, smaller than men. Honestly, every every moment of my existence in public feels like a goddamn revolution. Yeah, that's awesome. I really like that. I think for me, like what I see with some of the disobedient bodies that we were talking about earlier, like we were talking about vampires and the infinitely hungry, mm. the body that Dark Phoenix has that can't really be, her power can't be contained by her body. And I think it goes back to a little bit of what Charlie Jane and I were talking about with rebelling against 
capitalism and Mm. sort of refusing to play into the relationships that we're asked to play into. And so a lot of the time in capitalism, it's eat or be eaten. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we have characters who are infinitely hungry or whose powers extend beyond their bodies, they're, they're playing some role in that but they're also in some ways refusing. Um, And so that's one of the areas that I think is most interesting in these movies is to see where the, where bodies kind of refuse to play into those power relationships. And so that, I love that. Yeah. This is much more about in the realm of symbolism as opposed to, you know, people walking down the street and, you know, refusing to be. Um, But I think that that's a a big part of what's being played with. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it back to what we talked to about at the start of this conversation about, you know, eugenics and this idea that's like really buried deep in science fiction of like certain bodies being heroic or mm-hmm. valorized or kind of more worthy of of living in the future. And mm-hmm. like the idea that like the futuristic is often depicted as, you know, a certain look that's like kind of shiny clothing and and everything looking like an Apple store and everybody <laughs> kind of wearing jumpsuits or whatever. And this idea that like the future is for all of us and that we all get to have desire and power and agency and control over our own bodies and that we all get to kind of feel embodied as part of this future world that that science fiction invites us to imagine, I think that's incredibly powerful and important. Yeah, I love that because I think getting to feel embodied really kind of fixes the wound in Jean Grey's identity because Mm -hmm. she's a powerful woman and she's constantly having her body ripped apart because Mm -hmm. she's so powerful and she's having her mind um, contained. And like, what about if she could just be super powerful and be in a body? Mm -hmm. What about that? You know, like that, that would be, that's the future I look forward to is where Jean Grey gets to be powerful and keep her body. And, you know, we all get to have whatever fucking body we're born with or that we want to have. So thank you so much for joining us, Meg, and for talking to us all about your work and like what you're thinking about. And tell us where we can find you online and what people might want to pick up by you. It's definitely a pleasure to join you. Thank you again for having me. Uh, you can find more of my work at MeggieListen.com, which is my website. I'm MeggieListen on Twitter, and I'm Megan Elison on Instagram, where I am very fat. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I think, yeah, I feel like you pioneered, at least in my life, the hashtag fat vanity, which is like my favorite series of photos. So, yeah. I'm so glad you appreciate it. Hashtag fat vanity. been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us wherever podcasts are available for download, streaming, whatever you're doing, glarbling, slabbling. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts that will help people zarble us with more efficiency. Uh, You can support us on Patreon. We give you lots of extras like uh, excerpts from our works in progress and essays and writing prompts every week and audio extras. So sign up on Patreon. We're patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. You can also follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And thanks so much to our amazing producer, Veronica Simonetti, and music from Chris Palmer. And thanks to you for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Bye.